So the Torah tells us, if a man dies, leaving a widow, he's married at the time of death, and he never had children, and he has a brother, then the um, brother of the deceased, the brother of the person who died, must marry the widow of the deceased. This mitzvah is called yibum. So the Torah tells us very clearly the reason for this mitzvah is that since this brother has no children, he has no continuity, he has no future name, to, or no future descendants to carry on his name. So when the widow marries the brother and has children with the brother, then the child will retain the name of the deceased or carry on the name of the deceased. So the oldest child born from this union of the widow of the deceased and the brother uh, uh, of the deceased um, is considered a continuation of the deceased brother. It is only a um, spiritual impact. There is no practical or legal implication for that whatsoever. They're still legally the biological son of their father, the, the, current, the current husband, um, and not considered in any, for any halachic things the son of the original husband, of the brother. Um, but nevertheless, they are at least spiritually considered a continuation of the deceased, the first husband of this woman. Now, this mitzvah supersedes another prohibition in the Torah. The Torah has a number of lists, uh, has a long list of what we call arayos, forbidden relations, various relatives that one is forbidden to marry. That includes your brother-in-law or sister-in-law. It is forbidden to have relations with and definitely marry a brother-in-law and sister-in-law. And that is one of the severe prohibitions that the Torah prohibits um, relations or marrying relatives. And here this mitzvah supersedes that prohibition. So although normally a woman is forbidden from marrying her brother-in-law, her husband's brother, and a man is forbidden from marrying his brother's wife, Nevertheless, in this instance, where the husband died without children, it is a mitzvah to do so. Now this mitzvah, I'll take a question a moment. Now this mitzvah applies even if the man is already married. And that is because the Torah originally allowed for polygamy. We once did a class on it, allowed for a person to have more than one wife, and therefore they can and must marry the brother, even if the brother is already married um, as a second wife. Now we have since banned polygamy. Today you would not be able to do it, as we're soon going to point out. Today we don't practice Yibum at all. Now, the woman, the widow of this deceased man, is forbidden from marrying anybody else. She's not allowed to marry anyone. She must marry her husband's brother. If there are multiple brothers, it is a mitzvah for the oldest brother to marry the widow. But if the oldest brother refuses to do so, any other brother can do so, can marry this widow. If all the brothers refuse to marry the widow, or if the widow refuses to marry them, or if they're not suitable for each other and therefore the courts don't think they should get married. Perhaps there's a huge age gap between them. Or for some other reason, they're not suitable. Or perhaps today the brother is married and um, we no longer allow polygamy. So for whatever reason, if they are unable or unwilling to perform this yibum, 
the widow marrying the brother, then they can instead perform a chalitza ceremony, and I'll soon get into the details of what exactly the chalitza ceremony entails. But they can perform a chalitza ceremony, and then once the chalitza, until the chalitza ceremony is performed, the widow is forbidden from marrying anybody else. Once she performs this chalitza ceremony together with the bro- with her husband's brother, with the, her deceased husband's brother, she may then marry anyone who she wishes. There were a few questions. Let me take some questions. Yes, Lewis. You said this no longer applies. I will get to when that. Did, when did that end? I will get to that. Very good question. Yes, Debbie. So love has nothing to do with marriage. I'm way back. I mean, people were set up. You know, you're going to marry this one. So there's nothing to do with how you care about or you feel about that other person. Well, they could choose not to marry each other if they decide to. They had the option of choosing not to marry each other. It was their choice. Yes, they have the right to refuse it. Both the brother could refuse and the wife, the widow could refuse. If they refuse it, or the courts can step in, who, is, who are facilitating the whole process, can say the rabbi could step in and say, no, you two should not be getting married. You have a 25-year age gap, and you are not suitable for each other. You should not be getting married. Um, or maybe, I know some people are happily married with a large age gap, um, but it doesn't, most of the time it doesn't make sense. Um, and so, or for some other reason, they can say you're not suitable for each other, you should not be marrying each other. They could step in and say, no, you cannot marry each other. And instead, they must perform the chalitza ceremony. So the, ideally, the oldest brother of the deceased performs this chalitza ceremony with the widow. Um, if the older brother is unable to perform the ceremony, another brother can. But once this chalitza ceremony is performed, now the widow can marry anyone she chooses, with the exception of one of the brothers-in-law. She's now once again forbidden to marry her brother-in-law, as any person is um, forbidden to marry their brother-in-law or sister-in-law. And she also is forbidden from marrying a kohen, just like a divorcee is forbidden from marrying a kohen, so to a woman who had chalitza is forbidden from marrying a kohen. Now, the Torah makes it clear that if a man dies without children and leaves a widow, it is ideal for the widow to marry the brother. That is the ideal. That is your first option. Only if they don't want to marry or is unrealistic for them to marry, then, or they are unable to marry, then they should perform the chalitza ceremony. However, our sages said, that because this yibum, marrying your husband's brother when your husband dies without children, since it is over, it is superseding a prohibition of not marrying your brother-in-law, it can only be done if you are marrying each other solely to perform the mitzvah of yibum, but not if you are marrying each other out of lust or out of a physical desire for each other. And therefore, scholars of the Talmud said that, um, said we should no longer allow people to perform the yibum marriage or to get married to marry the brother-in-law, since realistically, most people will marry because of a 
personal desire rather than solely for the mitzvah, and therefore everybody should perform the chalitza ceremony. Anyone who's, any woman whose husband dies without children should perform the chalitza ceremony with the brother rather than marrying the brother. Now this issue was debated in the Talmud. There were some scholars who said that since realistically nobody will do it for the sake of the mitzvah alone, therefore even though it's an ideal to perform the yibum to, um, to get married in a yibum marriage, um, to marry the brother, since you will not do it for the right reason, you do it because uh, you do it for your own personal desires, therefore better to do the chalitza ceremony. There were some sages in the Talmud that disputed that and said, no, that's not correct. Even normal people who will get married because they desire each other, they want to be married to each other, not just for the sake of the mitzvah, they should also get married, the widow should marry the deceased brother. So this issue is debated in the Talmud. And this debate continued for quite some time, and various communities had different customs. In some communities, the couple would be, the widow would be encouraged to marry the brother-in-law when it was realistic and when the, what they both wanted to. In other communities, it was not allowed at all. Um, and this varied, this debate continued all the way through to the Middle Ages. But in the last couple hundred years, it's become universally accepted in all Jewish communities that not to perform the yibum ceremony. Part of that may be because we no longer, part of that may be because we no longer um, practice polygamy. And so therefore, if the brother is married, you definitely cannot perform the yibum ceremony. Um, but uh, even if the brother is not married, we no longer do it. Uh, sorry, the yibum is no longer performed. In other words, the widow no longer marries the brother. And that has been the custom in Jewish communities for hundreds of years. And instead, we only perform the chalitza ceremony. So if a woman's husband dies today and for the last couple hundred years and in many communities for the last 1,500 years or more, with, uh, if a woman's husband dies without children, she, rather than marrying the brother, we don't allow her to marry the brother, the, her husband's brother, she rather must perform the chalitza ceremony with the brother. That is what is practiced today and has been practiced in all communities for some time and um, has been widely practiced in many communities, at least since the days of the Talmud. That means that she's prohibited from marrying her husband's brother. She is forbidden from marrying her husband's brother. He goes back to the original prohibition. She's forbidden from marrying her husband's brother. She is also, the widow is also, if her husband dies without children, the widow is forbidden from marrying anybody else other than anybody else as well until she performs the chalitza ceremony with her husband's brother. She's not, we don't marry the husband's brother anymore. That would be Yibum. We don't do Yibum anymore. Um, and hasn't been done for such, some time. Rather, we perform a ceremony called Chalitza, which is done with the widow and the husband's brother. And I will soon describe what exactly Chalitza is. So what is Chalitza? Chalitza ceremony is performed in front of a Beddin or a Jewish court. And it involves three steps. The first step is what we call Kriya, where the woman must read from the Torah. 
and say, my brother-in-law refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He refuses to perform the Yibum rite. She must read that. She reads it. We'll see in Hebrew, the Torah says exactly what she must say. The brother-in-law must then respond, I do not wish to perform the Yibum rite. That is the first step. That is called Kriya. The second step, the widow must then untie a leather shoe that the brother-in-law is wearing on his right foot and remove that leather shoe. And then the third step, the widow must then spit on the floor in front of the brother and say, so shall be done to the man who does not build his brother's house and his name shall be called in Israel, Chalutz Hanal, shoe removed. When these three steps are performed, where first they do the Kriya, the reading, then the Chalitzat Hanal, the removal of the shoe, and then the Rikika, the spitting, these three steps are all part of the ceremony. When these three steps are performed, then the Chalitza is done, and now she is free to marry anybody whom she wishes. So it is a very unusual ceremony, and I will soon get to the reasons why which I know everybody is wondering about. But let me first get into the details of exactly how the ceremony is performed. Is so, it is performed to this day. The Chalitza ceremony is performed by Bethans to this day. Now, I should point out, the Chalitza ceremony is fairly rare because in order for a Chalitza ceremony to be performed, it requires a number of conditions. It requires a man to die while married, leaving behind a widow and not leaving behind any children and have a brother. So you need those three conditions. You must leave a, when a person dies, you must leave a widow, not leave children or any living descendants and leave a brother. So in that instance, when that happens, then the Chalitza ceremony is performed. In reality, it is fairly rare. Most communities or Beth Dins will perform it maybe once in 10 years, once in 20 years. It's not done very often. But every Beth Din did perform Chalitza, historically. Um, but most you know, judges on courts do it a couple times in their lifetime. It's not something that was done very often. But in order to be able, for a court to be able to perform this chalitza ceremony, they must have a special chalitza shoe. And so every Bethdin, every court had a special chalitza shoe that was made. Um, I should have brought a picture of the shoe, but they, Bethdins today all have it. There are many, if you go to Jewish museums with old Jewish artifacts, you'll often see chalitza shoe because one of the you know, special items that a community had, you know, along with the Torah scroll and the crowns of the Torah and the Megillah and other important items that a community had in the synagogue or in the community center was always a chalitza shoe. And every old Jewish community had one. What does a chalitza shoe look like? So I'll try to describe it. It is made out of 100% leather. Everything must be made out of leather like our tefillin. Um, even the um, even the stitches are sewed with animal, um, with animal um, tendons, like our tefillin. Um, so it's made, it's 100% animal product. It must be made like tefillin from a kosher animal. It's made specially for the sake of chalitza. It's not a shoe you can buy off the shelf. 
Now the shoe is made with a thick, hard leather sole and a soft leather on top, similar to our shoes that we have, leather shoes that we have. Um, it has a backing, and then it's kind of like a boot, where it has the leather comes up the side of the foot. And it's a right shoe, it goes on the right foot. Um, there, uh, it goes on the right foot, but it comes up the, it comes up like a boot. Now, the front of the upper part that goes up on the leg is open. So it just has a back, it just is on the side, and the front is open. And then in the back, it has two holes in the back. So the back part that covers the leg, um, there are two holes, one above the other in the back. That is what the shoe looks like. I probably should have brought a picture. You can Google it, Chalitza shoe, guaranteed a picture will come up. What is the thread made of? So then, there's no thread on the shoe itself. Then, in the leather, in the front part of the, in the front part that goes up over the leg, the leather, the front part of, that goes over the leg, there is either holes made in the leather, leather or um, hooks added with leather, and you use that to then tie a leather thread or leather strap, and you tie the shoe with a leather strap, and the shoe must fit the um, brother-in-law who is doing chalitza, so they would have to often adjust the shoe or re-stitch it to make sure it fits him, and, it must, and it's placed on his right foot, uh, it's placed on his right foot, and then using the leather strap, it is twice wrapped around the leg in going over the upper part of the shoe so that the front part that is open actually touches his foot. He doesn't wear it with any socks, just plain on his foot. And in the back part, there are two holes, one above the other, and so the leather touches the back of his foot exactly where those holes are, the leather of the strap. And so it's wrapped around twice above his leg, and then it is on his leg where the top part of the shoe is. And then it is wrapped once on his leg above the shoe. So right around his leg itself. And then it is tied in the front as we tie our shoes with a knot and then a bow. The same way we tie our shoes, right? You tie a knot, you kind of tie it once, and then you put a bow over it and pull it to make it tight. So that is the way it is tied. So before you begin the chalitza ceremony, you must have this shoe and you must tie it on the brother-in-law in order as part of the ceremony. So let me, now that we've described the shoe, um, let me now describe the ceremony itself. So the ceremony, as we said, is fairly rare in most Jewish communities. It happens once every couple years, maybe once in 10 years. Um, I was once a rabbi in a Bethden told me, I think, that he had you know, he'd been on the Bethden for 20-something years. He had done chalitza twice. So it's not done very often. Um, it's not a very common thing. When it's done, it's a big deal. Um, usually many people come to watch, especially aspiring um, rabbis want to see it, so that they know what to do if they ever need to do it, because it's not very common. So normally a Bethdin involves three rabbis or three judges. A Chalitza Bethdin requires five rabbis, five judges. So it's an expanded Bethdin. So after a woman's wife, husband dies without children, 
we must wait 90 days before performing the chalitza, not including the day of death and the day of the chalitza. We wait 90 days. So then we, they, the day before the chalitza is done, but before the chalitza ceremony was done, and usually the chalitza ceremony was done in public in a synagogue, but the day before the chalitza ceremony was done, the courts, the five judges, together with the um, brother-in-law and the widow come to the synagogue or the place that, or, or to the synagogue and there they must announce and declare that tomorrow we are going to perform chalitza. It's one of, it's a rare mitzvah that the Torah requires. You must declare in advance that you are going to perform the ceremonies. They usually do it the day before. The next morning, the Bethden comes back. The widow comes back together with the brother-in-law and now um, they are ready to perform the chalitza ceremony they put this boot shoe chalitza shoe special chalitza shoe on the um, on the brother's foot the right foot the then um, uh, then they um, the first thing they do and we do this also um, when we do divorces and other ceremonies, the brother, because it's such an important ceremony, the brother must first invalidate any statement that he made that invalidates the chalitza. So if he earlier said, if I do chalitza, I'm just joking, and it won't count, he must invalidate any such statements, just in case he did that. Then the widow must stand up, and she says in Hebrew, reading from the Torah, my brother-in-law does not wish to um, continue his brother's name in Israel. He does not wish to perform the Yibum rite. Um, then the brother-in-law must stand and respond in Hebrew and say, Lo lakachta, I do not wish to take her. Then the brother-in-law presses his right foot that has the of shoe into the ground. The widow now bends down and just with her right hand, she unties, pulling the the, um, pulling the bow on the shoe where it's tied, um, unties the bow and removes the entire strap and drops it on the ground with her right hand. Then using her left hand, she lifts up his foot, his right foot where it has the shoe, and using her right hand, she removes the shoe from his foot. Um, that's step two. Then she must stand up in front of him and spit on the ground in front of him. The saliva must be visible um, to the judges. And then the widow then recites three times, so shall be done to the man that will not build his brother's household and his family shall be called in Israel, the one whose shoe was removed. And then she recites that three times, and then everybody standing there responds three times, Chalutz Hanal, Chalutz Hanal, Chalutz Hanal. And the court then stands up, the court then says, uh, may it be God's will that daughters of Israel should never have to perform Chalitza. And then they say, a, they don't say a blessing, they say, blessed are you, Baruch Ata, without God's name, who sanctified us with his commandments and the commandments of Abraham our father. Then, when the chalitza ceremony is concluded, the court then must write a document called a get chalitza to record what happened, and all five judges then sign on this document, and they give it to the widow, so she has a record that she did chalitza, and now she is able to remarry.
So that is the chalitza ceremony, the wise I will get to in just a moment. Yes, Steve? Yeah, so I don't understand all the spitting, you know, because to me spitting is like the worst insult you could do. And I think even... So the why I'm going to get to in a moment. All right, but, but the other part that I'm getting to is all, sometimes I might mention something about kosher food. And I think even Jews will say the same thing, but the Gentiles will say, oh, so what makes it kosher is the rabbi spits on it. And I think they're serious. They're not trying to... I don't know anything about that. I've never heard that before. Usually they say the rabbi blesses it. But either way, it's false. So, normally, if there is a brother and a woman's husband dies without children, they do chalitza 90 days later, and she cannot remarry until the chalitza ceremony is performed. It's usually performed straight away, and then she is free to remarry anybody she wishes other than her husband's brothers, who were always forbidden to her, and other than a Kohen, she's permitted to marry anybody else. Because that is one of the arayos, one of the forbidden relations. The Torah forbids us from marrying certain relatives, including any siblings of our spouse. We're not allowed to marry our brother-in-law, or sister-in-law, or um, parents-in-law, or daughters-in-law. There's lo- lots of lots of in-laws that are forbidden that the Torah forbids us from marrying. What's such a good the Torah forbids it. It's a long a lo- among a list of arayos of forbidden people that we are forbidden from marrying. Plus, you both don't have but we don't do that anymore. We don't do the yibum anymore. We only perform the chalitza ceremony. So today it is forbidden to marry the brethren. So what if it's the woman's decision not to marry? She's still doing the spitting? Still does it. And we'll get to why. I'm going to get to why in a moment. Now normally, if there is a brother, and the woman dies, uh, sorry, and the husband dies, and um, without children, the woman does chalitza nine days later, they remarry. Sometimes the brother may not be nearby. It may not be easy to even find him and get hold of him. It can be challenging to find the brother, get hold of him, travel to him, or get him to travel to where the woman is in order to perform the chalitza ceremony. Today, travel is fairly easy. Once upon a time, it was a challenge. It was a challenge that these people would have to travel great distances to perform the chalitza ceremony, but it is really important to do because otherwise the widow cannot remarry. In rare instances, very rare, remember chalitza itself is fairly rare. In rare instances, the brother is a minor. If the brother is a minor, he cannot perform chalitza, but the widow also cannot remarry until he does perform the chalitza ceremony. She must wait for him to mature, to become an adult, which would require him to, be, um, to, reach, um, pu- uh, to reach puberty. Once he reaches puberty, then they're able to um, and then they're able to perform the chalitza ceremony, and then um, she is able to remarry. In our family, we have a story that my great-great-grandmother, her name was Esther, um, and she was widowed as a young woman um, without children. She was about 20 years old, and she was widowed, and her husband left no children. And he left only one brother who was an infant, and so she was unable to remarry. And she went to a great tzaddik who promised her that if she waits, as the Torah requires for her brother-in-law to, um, to grow up and mature, um, she will get married and she will raise a wonderful family. 
And indeed, she waited 14 years for her brother's brother-in-law to grow up and reach puberty and be able to perform the chalitza ceremony. So she wasn't able to marry until she was about 35 years old. And uh, she did. She did marry when she was 35. And she then had five sons, one of which was my great-grandfather. So why do we perform this? Why do we do the Yibum? Why do we do the Chalitza ceremony? The Zohar explains that every person has a need, every soul that comes into this world has a need of continuation in our world. Everyone needs to leave behind a continuation in this world. So the soul has a need to have a child, somebody that continues their legacy on earth after they die. A person who gets married, we believe that the individual, the two spouses who get married are two halves of a single soul. You're literally soul mates, you're two halves of one soul. So what happens is, if a man dies without children, not leaving behind a legacy in this world. Normally when a man dies, they essentially, are, or a woman dies, a, a, married, a, a person dies and leaves a spouse behind, they essentially, you lose half your soul. Half your soul continues on to the next world, and half the soul stays here, and essentially regenerates and becomes its own soul, and eventually can marry somebody else and find another soulmate. But if... A man dies without leaving children behind in this world. If the man doesn't leave any children behind, then, they, then, the, man, then the soul it feels difficult to leave this world since they have no legacy behind in this world. And therefore they do not leave their other half soul. The woman that they were married to, they remain connected to her. The only way to create then this legacy is because siblings are have a natural connection to each other if the woman marries her husband's brother and they have children together then that releases her husband's her deceased husband's soul and allows him and it perpetuates his legacy and allows him to continue however so anyone who dies and leaves behind a spouse is left with half a soul but they regenerate. Souls are able to regenerate. It's a process that we call Ibur in Kabbalah. Souls regenerate and are able to then move on on their own later. Same happens when a couple gets divorced. Right? What about a woman who has no children? Sorry? What about a woman who has no children? I don't know. Presumably they also fail to leave a legacy and find it hard to leave this world. Um, I don't, we, the husband is not required to remarry and perpetuate for the wife. Um, I, don't know, um, I don't know why, or I don't know um, why the woman's soul can continue um, without um, having, leaving children behind and doesn't stay with the husband. But it definitely happens, the Zohar tells us, that when the husband dies, the woman, and Lee doesn't leave children, the soul refuses to leave the woman that they were married to. 
So the only way to get them to leave, if they, she does not marry the brother, which we no longer allow, if she does not remarry the brother, the only way to get them to leave is through this chalitza ceremony. Why does this chalitza ceremony allow her to leave the brother? So it re- involves removing her brother, allow, sorry, allow her husband's soul to leave her. It involves removing her brother-in-law's shoe. Now, according to Kabbalah, shoes have very, very great importance, which is why whenever we pray, we must always wear shoes. That's the law. We must always wear shoes whenever we pray. But when we went into the temple, we always went to the temple barefoot. We had to take off our shoes when we walked around the temple. And the reason for that is that a, the, our, the land that we step on, the ground, it re- represents our material world. A person has to rise above the material world. A person has to know how to step above the world. And we have to be focused on higher, on, doing, on living a spiritual life, living a non-material life, making a spiritual impact. So we have to have the ability to rise above materiality. Our shoes represent that ability to rise above materiality. And that is why um, when we pray we must wear shoes to separate ourselves from the material world however in the temple where the land the ground itself was holy there we did not wear shoes because there we do not want to separate ourselves from this material world so the shoe represents a person's ability to rise above so now the soul of the fellow that is found in this woman that refuses to leave, refuses to um, go, is represented by this shoe, by this shoe that kind of separates the person from the material world. And therefore, when the woman removes the shoe, it represents removing that soul from her. It is symbolic of removing the soul that is attached to her. And so when, once she removes that shoe, that then removes the soul, her husband's soul, that is attached to her. So that is what the Zohar explains why the shoe is removed and why we must perform this chalitza ceremony. Now, in general, God gave us, we believe, 613 commandments. Some of those commandments were given to us with reasons. Hashem told us why we must fulfill those commandments. For example, Hashem said, rest every week on the seventh day, Shabbat, to remember how God created the world and then rested on the seventh day. So we keep Shabbat to remind ourselves of creation. God told us to eat matzah on Passover, to remember how God took our ancestors, we're slaves in Egypt, and God took our ancestors out of Egypt. Below the shofar, we are told, the Torah doesn't tell us, but our sages tell us, to wake us up and remind us to change and mend our ways, to return to God, repent um, before, for Rosh Hashanah on our day of judgment. So there are many mitzvahs that are symbolic, but we have very clear reasons why the mitzvahs were given. Then we have mitzvahs that we have no reason for. God said, this is what I want you to do. I'm not going to tell you why. There's no reason, none of your business, or I'm not telling you why you should do it. Just do it. Just listen to me. Examples of those mitzvahs, for example, are most of the mitzvahs of kosher, 
Why are we forbidden from eating some animals and, require, and allowed to eat other animals? There's no rhyme or reason for it. Hashem said, this is what I want you to eat. This is what I don't want you to eat. Why are we forbidden from mixing milk and meat? Again, no rhyme or reason to it. Hashem says, this is what I want you to do. There is no reason to it. This is, the way, this is what you should do. And there are many, many commandments that fall under this general um, rule, all the, rich, all the commandments of ritual purity, um, and many other commandments that there's no reason for it. We don't, we don't know any reason. God did not tell us why we, he wants us to do it. He just said, do it. And the Talmud says, we've got to do whatever he tells us. We made a covenant with him. We, made a, we, we agreed to follow all of his commandments, our ancestors at Mount Sinai, and their agreement is binding on us. And we are required to follow his commandments, and in return, we are his chosen people. We don't get asked if we want to do it or not. We don't get told why we're doing it. We do it because that is what we're supposed to do. That is what God wants us to do, and that is why we do it. No reason given. In fact, the Talmud says if God would give us a commandment to chop wood, he didn't give us such a commandment. But if he did, then we'd do that too. Whatever commandment he gives us, that's what we do, even if we have no reason. But our sages take this a step further. And our sages say, even the commandments that have clear reasons for them, even if they have a reason, the truth is, that that is not the real reason we do it. The real reason we follow these commandments is because God told us to. So in an instance that the reason no longer applies, if we have a commandment and God gave us a reason for the commandment, but the reason no longer applies, we must fulfill the commandment anyway. Why? Because the reasons that God gave us for the commandments are not the ultimate reasons. Those are not the ultimate reasons for the commandments. Real, the real reason we follow God's commandments is because he told us to do so. So even if we don't understand why, we are required to do so anyway and follow instructions exactly as required. And many commandments have very, very detailed laws and very, you know, it's very particular exactly what you do and how you do it and the details of what you do, where it's the many commandments are very detailed. And we must follow these details to the letter exactly as God told us to do it, whether we understand why we should do it, whether we don't understand why we should do it, we do it anyway. So for example, the tefillin, we were commanded to wrap the tefillin, uh, Jewish men are commanded to wrap tefillin in order to, it is a way to um, symbolize how we are tying ourselves to God and must do everything that he says. Um, but the tefillin have a lot of detail to it. They must be black and they must be square and they must have a shin with three lines on one side of the tefillin and four lines on the other side and four parchments inside and tied with um, tendons of an animal. A lot of detail to it. We don't have any reasons for these details, but we must do them exactly as God told. Not only must we follow God's commandments exactly as he told us, because he told us to do it, even if we don't understand why, and often we don't understand why, he says, no, this is our deal. I told you to do it, you gotta do it. Not only that, even when it makes absolutely no sense, 
we are required to do it anyway. So not only when we don't understand why we do it, but you want us to do it, we'll do it. But even if it makes no sense whatsoever, even so, you have to do it anyway. And I think this is the best way we can describe the mitzvah of yibum and chalitza. The Torah gives us a reason for the mitzvah of yibum, a woman whose husband dies without children must marry the brother. Why? To perpetuate the name of the deceased brother, to keep the name of the deceased brother alive through the children that are born from his widow and his brother. However, this mitzvah is required not only if you will be able to perpetuate the name of the deceased brother, even if a woman is beyond childbearing years and she will never have children. Even so, she must still marry, the mitzvah of Yibam is she must still marry her husband's brother. So even if the reason is not relevant, the mitzvah still applies. And this is true even with the chalitza ceremony. So, and today we don't do the Yibam anymore, we don't marry the brother. Even though the chalitza ceremony today makes no sense the way it's practiced today. Even so, we perform the chalitza ceremony as is. Taken simply, when you look at the chalitza ceremony, where it involves stating that my husband's brother, my deceased husband's brother doesn't want to marry me, and he says, I don't want to marry her, and she takes off his shoe and then she spits in front of him, it appears like a ceremony demeaning the um, brother who is refusing to marry his brother's widow. That's what it appears to be. But that is not the way it's practiced. Because we're not giving him an option to marry his brother's widow anymore. He's not allowed to marry his brother's widow. And so Rabbi Shlomo ben Aderes, known as the Rashba, one of our greatest Jewish scholars of all times, he lived in the 13th century in Spain, um, in Barcelona, he was once asked the question, today we no longer allow the brother to marry the widow of his, his brother's widow. He's not, we don't perform the yibum anymore. So we make, him stand, we make the woman stand up in court. And the first of the three-step process of chalitza, you recall, is she must stand up and say, My brother-in-law is refusing to establish his brother's name in Israel by marrying me. And then the brother-in-law must respond and read in Hebrew from the Torah, I don't want to marry her. So they asked the Rashba, well, that's a lie. The brother-in-law says, that's not true. I do want to marry her. You're just not letting me. I want to marry her, but you're not letting me marry her. So how can you make him say that? It's not true. And the Rashba responds, you're right. It's not true. These statements they're saying are not accurate statements. The woman says, my brother-in-law does not want to marry me. He does. And he says, I don't want to marry her. He does. Maybe he does, in a scenario that he does. And it's not true. And nevertheless, she is required to make this statement in Hebrew, reading it in Hebrew as written in the Torah, as we would read the recite the Shema or any other 
thing that is required to recite in Hebrew, recite a blessing, recite a prayer. She's required to recite this. And the brother-in-law is required to recite this. That is the mitzvah. Even though the word statements are not true. They don't accurately reflect what the people feel. Nevertheless, they are required to recite these statements. It is a mitzvah for them to do so. And then she removes the shoe in the exact detailed way that we described. It must be the special chalitza shoe that we described that is made like tefillin out of leather for the sake of the mitzvah and sewn with, um, with, uh, sewn with tendons of an animal and made exactly the right shape and exactly according to the law. And she must remove it exactly as described, similar to the way we put on tefillin. We make tefillin and we put on tefillin exactly, wrap it perfectly, and then untie it perfectly. It must be done exactly as described. All this, that is the mitzvah. And then, perhaps surprisingly, perhaps maybe we're uncomfortable with it, she must spit in front of him. And it must, the saliva must be visible to the judges. That is the mitzvah. Says the Rashba, this whole mitzvah, we don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense. And it's somewhat counterintuitive, and you're even making them make statements that are inaccurate. And nevertheless, that is the commandment of Hashem. It's a commandment that makes no sense. It is what we call a gzerat hakatuf, a decree of scripture. God said, this is what you should do. Just like he said you should eat kosher. And just as he says you should wear tefillin, you should put a mezuzah on your door. And just as he gave us all these other commandments, he commanded us that in a scenario where a man dies without, leaves a widow and dies without children, the widow and brother-in-law must perform this chalitza ceremony, exactly as described with these three steps that are described. So let me just finish up and I'll take questions. So I think that while this mitzvah itself is very challenging to understand, and the Rashba writes that very clearly, and many other scholars write this as well. It is something that, while the Torah originally gives us a reason for it, the reason no longer applies, is no longer relevant, uh, no longer applies to our current scenario. Um, and the details of how it's performed are somewhat counter, don't make sense, we don't understand them. And we're even requiring the brother-in-law, the widow and the brother-in-law to make statements, to read as they would read the Shema to read statements as a mitzvah for them to read it, just like you read the Shema. And they're required to read statements that are not really true. But that's what the Torah says they should read. This is all exerat hakatuv, decree of scripture. We do it because that's what Hashem told us to do. And this mitzvah really serves as an example, and perhaps this is why uh, communities always made it such a big deal, and it was always public, and the whole community would come to watch it. It was a very big deal when the chalitza was done in any com is done in any community. Um, perhaps because it was rare and people were curious, but perhaps also because it is a mitzvah that really shows us something important about all mitzvahs. That the reason why we do mitzvahs is not because they're comfortable, not because we like them, not because they're fun or they're enjoyable. And they are most mitzvahs most of the time, not all the time. But most of the time it's pleasant, it's good. Our sages, the, in uh, Proverbs it says, The ways of the Torah are pleasant. All its paths are peace. Generally, life is better when you follow God's commandments. It's pleasant to keep Shabbos. It's a nice thing. It's a nice thing to keep kosher when you're careful about what you eat. There, you, you, it's a better life that way. But sometimes it can be very challenging. 
Sometimes Shabbos observance could be very challenging. Sometimes kosher could be challenging. Sometimes other mitzvahs. Ultimately, why do we do it? Because that's what Hashem told us to do. And Chalitza really gives us that example. It's the example of a mitzvah that we don't understand it. It makes no sense and somewhat counterintuitive, even requiring people to read statements that don't make sense, that aren't true. And that's the Torah's command. That's what we are required to do. And so it really teaches us Judaism in general is not meant to make sense necessarily. And we do the mitzvahs because that is what Hashem told us to do. And we have a covenant, we have a brit, a covenant with Hashem. And we are therefore must fulfill that covenant that we have made with Hashem.